Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and of course, this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine, where we want to keep you guys up on the literature, and to do that, we spoon-feed it to you. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a journal feed subscriber, and so you will not be getting the full journal feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, all good articles, but if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember that we don't ever want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch. We'll help you out. Let's jump to the second article. Titled, Identifying Children Likely to Benefit from Antibiotics for Acute Sinusitis. A Randomized Clinical Trial at the JAMA. Children get stuffy noses all the time. Uh, I mean, pretty much constantly. Hence the very endearing term, a snotty-nosed little kid. But for most sinusitis, I mean, it's viral and thus does not benefit from antibiotics, so you're more likely to cause side effects by giving them antibiotics. At least right off the bat anyways. But if the child has symptoms that are persistent or worsening, might these patients perhaps benefit from at least a trial of antibiotics? After all, some sinusitis are caused by bacteria. Well, how about it? This trial was a multi-center RCT on children aged 2 to 11 years old with persistent or worsening rhinosinusitis. To be called persistent, these symptoms had to be present for 11 to 30 days, or if they were worsening, then 6 to 10 days if there was some initial improvement. These symptoms were quantified using the Pediatric Rhinosinusitis Symptom Scale, on which they had to have at least a score of 9 out of 40 without symptoms being due to asthma or allergies. There are, of course, patients who clearly need antibiotics right up front. Those are the patients with severe rhinosinusitis, co-infections, those with recent antibiotic use or severe comorbidities that put them more at risk for severe disease. These patients were excluded. Now, 515 patients were randomized to either placebo or amoxicillin clavulinate at 90 mg per kg per day for 10 days. They had the caregivers of these patients, that is most likely the parents, record nightly pediatric rhinosinusitis symptom scale scores and record all of that in an electric diary. Now, I'm sure you've heard this excuse before, but enrollment was stopped early because of COVID. They got about 80% of their sample, though, so not too bad. And despite not getting their entire sample, they still found a significant improvement in symptom scores in the children who were in the treatment group during the first 10 days of treatment. You might expect that there was more diarrhea in the treatment arm, and there was a number needed to harm of 16 but treatment failure in the placebo arm was a number needed to treat of 8, so it kind of balances out in favor of treatment. Other things that you want from treatment, like changes in daycare costs, you know, days of missed work, or additional healthcare visits, these were not different. Interestingly, all the patients were tested for common bacterial culprits of rhinosinusitis at the beginning of the trial, namely S. pneumonia, H. flu, M. catarrhalis, and if they were positive, they were more likely to benefit from treatment than otherwise. Though, even when negative, there was still an effect. So, even in an underpowered study, they found some effect, which I usually find promising. It's not as though it was ended early for benefit, in which case, of course, they could be exaggerating the effect. In this case, there's probably almost definitely an effect. In a spoonful, let it be known that in young children with persistent or worsening sinusitis, treatment with antibiotics appears to be beneficial though only for a slight improvement in symptoms. To be totally honest, it's not that big. All the same, guidelines still recommend treating these kids. And then we skip over to the fifth article. Diagnosis and Management of Priapism out of the JAMA. 
You know, I would have sworn that we covered articles on priapism before in the journal feed, but I searched and I didn't find any. So now we're doing it. Priapism is an erection lasting more than four hours. Guidelines for the management of priapism were made by the American Urological Association, the Sexual Medicine for the Society of North America, as well as some representatives from ASEP, all collaborating together to release these guidelines in 2022. There are two types of priapism, ischemic and non-ischemic. As you might have guessed from the name, ischemic is much more of an emergency than not and needs to be resolved within 6 to 12 hours. Or else, there is significant risk of functional loss, fibrosis, and worst of all, penis shortening. That's right, guys. I know you might be embarrassed by what's going on down there and you don't want to come to the hospital, but you should present quickly or you really risk it all. Now, ischemic priapism is almost always painful and will appear as a fully erect penis. While non-ischemic priapism is not typically painful and is usually a less than fully erect penis. These guidelines make a few recommendations that you can pass along to the care of your patients. Now, if the priapism has been going on for more than 36 hours, you should tell your patient that it's unlikely they will regain erectile function. I guess 36 hours straight is enough for a lifetime because that might be all they get. That's a level B recommendation. Now, it's worth investigating the cause of the priapism. For example, sickle cell disease, cancer testing, tramadol use. But don't ever delay the management for this testing. With the same principle in mind, you can undertake any disease-specific interventions, but again, as long as they don't delay the treatment of priapism. Getting a blood gas from the penis to distinguish between non-ischemic and ischemic is definitely okay to do. An ischemic blood gas will look like a PO2 of less than 30 millimeters of mercury and a PCO2 of more than 60 millimeters of mercury, as well as likely a pH less than 7.25. Now that's about it for recognition. How about treatment? First-line treatment for ischemic priapism is intercavernosal injection of phenylephrine with corporeal aspiration, with or without irrigation, before moving on to operative management. It's a level C recommendation. If that doesn't work, then urology may need to place a distal corporoglandular shunt. I don't think you'll ever be expected to do this yourself because it would involve cutting into the actual glands of the penis, and that is definitely not in my comfort zone. None of that management applies really to non-ischemic priapism, which just simply doesn't offer the same risks of damage to the penis itself and is not really an emergency condition. It also usually self-resolves. Do you feel any more ready for your next priapism case? I hope so, at least a little bit. If you want some extra resources and really nice pictures, then the EM Cases podcast has a whole episode on priapism with great infographics, so you can check that out as well. In Spoonful, ischemic priapism is a real emergency, and these have been some guidelines with recommendations on how to treat and recognize it. All right, so let's do our wrap-up. We ran out of articles. What did we learn today? From the second article, if rhinosinusitis won't go away, just keeps getting worse, then these children are likely to benefit from some antibiotics. And finally, from the fifth article, we reviewed the recognition and treatment of priapism. Now again, if you are hearing this right now, you are not a part of the members feed, and so you actually missed three articles from this past week. One of them was talking about, you know, what's the deal with all these unmatched emergency medicine places? And then we talked about syphilis, how it's on the rise and how to recognize it. And then finally, a whole article on neurosyphilis. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.